Welcome to Jewish History Matters. Today, I'm joined by Sonia Gollins to talk about her book, It Could Lead to Dancing, Mixed Sex Dancing and Jewish Modernity, an exciting new book about the history of dance and modern Jewish culture. Sonia Gollins is a postdoctoral research and teaching associate in Yiddish literature and culture studies at the University of Vienna. And this September, she'll be joining the Department of Hebrew and Jewish Studies at University College London as lecturer in Yiddish. Sonia Gollins is also the managing editor of Plotting Yiddish Culture, an initiative of the Digital Yiddish Theater Project. In the show notes, I've linked to an excerpt to the book, It Could Lead to Dancing, and I hope that you'll check it out. It really is such an exciting and innovative approach to thinking about modern Jewish culture. In the episode today, Sonia and I are going to be discussing how social dancing was both an important part of Jewish cultural history and also offers a great way to think about all sorts of important themes in modern Jewish history, both in Europe and the U.S., whether we're talking about mobility, both on the dance floor and social mobility on a larger scale, or if we're thinking about gender, or just the practical social spaces where Jews negotiated their participation in wider society, there's just so much to say. And I'm so glad that Sonia is able to join us on the podcast to talk about her new book, to talk about the history of dance, and to talk about why all of this matters as we try to better understand modern Jewish culture and history. This episode is going to be the final one for the 2020 to 21 academic year, especially in this past year when we've been so isolated from one another. I've been so glad to be able to help curate and develop the conversations on the podcast. We'll be back in the fall with more episodes. And thanks so much for listening. Hi, Sonia. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. This is such an interesting topic. It's just such a fascinating lens that we can use to look at all sorts of issues. What is important about dance and dancing, sort of on the largest scale? What is going on here that makes dance such an interesting and important topic, whether we're looking at Jewish culture or beyond? So I think the first thing to think about is that dancing was an incredibly popular leisure activity. And today when we have, we have television, we have all sorts of other sorts of activities, there's more um, options you know, for sports and things like that. It's, it's easy for us to forget. Dancing was probably the main leisure activity that men and women did together across various classes in various geographic areas. And that this was also something that for Jews, as they were becoming, trying to become European or French or German or even American, um, that this was seen as one of the ways that they could do this. In addition to this popularity, which hasn't really been explored in a Jewish context, is the fact that it was something that people were really trained to interpret, that sort of almost to view dancing as a text, especially when you get dances like at balls, um, where there was this um, big expectation of following certain etiquette norms and being able to perform 
the dance choreography and also a sense that being able to do these things was an indication of your class status, that you were able to properly execute the forms of the dance, that you had a good posture, and that you didn't accidentally dance the part of the wrong gender in some sort of elaborate dance. And that there was a lot of anxiety about these things, but also people would perform these dances and then watch other people doing them, and they would be able to understand certain signals socially based on who was dancing with whom and how well and how closely they were holding each other and all of those things. And so it made it very easy for them to also interpret these sorts of scenes when they read literary texts that showed dance, um, which you get in a lot of different literary texts, um, even classic works, Jane Austen's novels, uh, Tolstoy, Madame Bovary, these classic European 19th century novels have these momentous dance scenes, um, and they show how people are meeting other people. And that also has to do with the weightiness of dance often being used in terms of courtship. Um, so people were using dance as a way of meeting people who could be quite momentous for their future lives. All of these aspects meant that there were a lot of anxieties about dance. It might have been fun or seen to be fun, but it was also a way of showing your class status, of something that you needed to interpret properly, of showing that you could um, adhere to gender norms. And then for Jews, um, there were some other sorts of aspects related to their own positions in, in a sort of modernizing society. Yeah, I mean, I think that you've highlighted here really well some of the really important ways in which dance and dancing and the settings of dance and how it's represented in, in popular culture as well, you know, are really important for understanding a whole range of issues about history and culture, and especially sort of in this 19th and early 20th century European and American context too. But it's also, it's funny, uh, this entire topic, especially in the Jewish context, is kind of like the butt of a joke. Literally speaking, I think you actually start the book out with a joke. How is it that something, such an important topic, gets boiled down to a joke in a way? How is it that Nick's dancing becomes this joke and what this represents? Because I think that so often things that are funny or it just seems like a joke are actually really serious, as, as you pointed out. I'll give you the short version of this joke now. Um, you can buy my book to have my more elaborate telling. Why don't Jews have sex standing up? because it could lead to mixed dancing. Um, there's a lot of different versions of this joke. And um, one thing I found was interesting was that it was difficult for me to tell whether this joke actually originated as a Jewish joke or not, because uh, there were a number of different versions coming from different faith traditions. Um, Baptists, Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons. I found a Muslim version on Reddit. Um, so there's various different cultures that are thinking about this taboo on mixed dancing. But in the Jewish context, what we get is this sort of flipping that happens where you might expect that the thing that would be the taboo would be the sex. But because it's married couples, um, the thing that's the taboo isn't the sex, it's the mixed dancing, even though you'd think maybe that the sex would be somehow more scandalous. In a Jewish context, this can be taken as a sort of gentle mockery of the principle in traditional Jewish law of building a fence around the Torah. Basically, there is something that is prohibited, and if you prohibit things that are one step removed, that would lead potentially to doing the thing that is prohibited, then you're sure that to not actually violate the thing that you're really not supposed to be doing. So this sort of apparatus develops of things that are forbidden to avoid 
doing these, these other things that, that are forbidden in the Torah. What you also get in this context is that this, this joke becomes this way for Jews that are engaged in their communities to talk about things that, that are forbidden culturally. You see this a lot, for instance, in Orthodox Judaism, um, that it could lead to mixed dancing is often used as a punchline for many things um, related to communal norms. And it's a way of signaling, oh, I'm in the know. I know what the rules are of my community. I found one website, for instance, that was giving advice to people who were interested in converting to Orthodox Judaism. And one of the things that this website said was, you should learn how to use this punchline. It could lead to mixed dancing appropriately because that's a way of showing that you belong, that you're some sort of an insider. So like this joke in the punchline has taken a life of its own in this sort of Jewish organizational context is sort of a way of showing that people really know what's going on and that they're able to sort of gently rib their communities. I think you pointed out here the many different levels on which dancing operates, right? There's the actual history. There's a way also in which this trope or this theme has also taken on a life of its own. And this also, it's, as you pointed out, it's also not just among the Jews. Like you talk about so many different versions of the joke. As I'm sure we're going to talk about, the issue of dancing and mixed sex dancing in particular you know, has this particular valence in Jewish culture, but it's also much beyond that. It's, it, you know, it's an entire theme. And when I first looked at the book, and I think I was drawn to the book immediately, first of all, because it has just a, such a fantastic cover, but also because it's such an interesting topic. But I immediately thought about the movie Dirty Dancing. And this is obviously outside the main time period that you're considering in the book, which is the 19th and early 20th centuries, though I think you do touch upon Dirty Dancing in the conclusion. But there are so many other kinds of cultural productions that we can talk about where dancing is presented as transgressive or kind of against the rules and so on and so forth. So do you maybe want to say something about why these kinds of stories are so striking, they're so repeated, both in Jewish culture and also beyond, essentially why there are similar versions of the same joke, you know, in all these different cultures and what this represents in terms of thinking about what dance represents in terms of the developments of modern culture in many settings, both for the Jews and also beyond that. So I think one of the things that comes up a lot in modern literature, certainly something I've noticed in my Yiddish literary scholarship, because like a lot of Yiddish literature deals with sort of like pushback against um, matchmaking as a communal institution. Think of Fiddler on the Roof and the Tevye the Dairyman stories, if you're familiar with them. But also in European literature more broadly, and not just European literature, there's a lot of concerns and anxieties about the sort of romantic partnerships people get into. They can be related to class, um, like you get that in economics, um, like for instance, Pride and Prejudice. There are also concerns related to questions like of um, propriety, like with the various adultery novels um, that take place in the 19th century. And so you have all these sorts of communal concerns that are connected to love, marriage, romance, sex, adultery, and all these issues also come up on the dance floor. And the dance floor becomes this sort of way of playing out these sorts of stories in a, in a very sort of choreographed ways. And you get a lot of those, those class issues um, in Dirty Dancing, where you have a, a bourgeois Jewish woman who wants a young woman who wants to um, go to the Peace Corps before going to, to college. And then she has this presumably non, non-Jewish 
working class lover um, who's also teaching her how to dance. And like dancing in and of itself is like actually considered completely okay in that context. The issue is that um, she's doing this sort of more earthy, and, well, they literally call it dirty dancing um, with working class resort employees that her father views as being kind of sexually immoral because of that one of the, these dancers ended up um, getting an abortion. So it's like all that all gets sort of connected. The Jewish part is like obvious to people who have studied the Caskill resorts. It's not necessarily as obvious as in some other texts, but I think of dirty dancing as really showing kind of the success of this, um, these efforts at Americanization that you get, for instance, in Hester Street, which opens up with a dance scene in the opening credits. And that's based on Yeckel, Tale of the New York Ghetto, which I talk about. What you're pointing out here, I think, is some of the ways in which the theme of dancing, right, and the transgressiveness of, of dancing in various forms comes out in, in various literary and cultural forms, you know, within Jewish culture and beyond. And I just think it's, it's, it's really interesting. You talked about the dance floor as, as choreographed, you know, it's, it's a setting. There are all of these ways in which we can look at dance and dancing and understand things through it. You know, it, it seems like this kind of like fun thing people, you know, do to have a good time, but it's also, you know, the butt of a joke. But at the same time, it's very, a very serious cultural issue that we can think about. You've highlighted here some of the ways in which both in, in Jewish culture and beyond that, that it kind of indicates some of these tensions and anxieties about modernization and about modernity, uh, whatever that looks like to different people at different points in time. And so sort of bringing us back to the question of and mixed sex dancing in particular in, in Jewish culture, what are the consequences of dance for modern Jewish culture? You know, how is it that dance helps us to understand modern Jewish experiences, whether we're talking about, you know, 19th century Vienna, right, or, you know, anywhere else, you know, what is it about dance for Jews that makes it into such an important issue that ultimately leads it to be this cultural touchstone, you know, oh, it might lead to mixed dancing. So dancing comes up so often in all of these classic literary texts. It's performed so widely. Um, But what, what is it about the Jewish piece that makes it different? And I think what we really get is that the thinking about when Jews enter the dance floor, you really get these, this question of the sort of social inclusion or exclusion of Jewish characters, where if you have a early 19th century anti-dance polemic from Germany, they might be saying all sorts of things about like propriety and women's health and, uh, and those sorts of concerns, um, but they don't really consider whether somebody is going to be coming and dancing who might not be an appropriate marriage partner and not because they're like some sort of scandalous woman who really should be quiet and in church, but instead the idea of somebody who's from this different social group that's seen as being such a, a visible and contested minority group in European society. In the European literary context, when you look at these scenes that have Jews participating in dancing, um, it just brings in this whole other layer of thinking about how Jews or like members of a minority group could actually participate in society and whether this sort of like fantasy of the ballroom as this place with, with fine clothing and good food and alcohol and music, if this actually is living up to the promise of being 
this sort of pleasurable location where maybe some of these like normal rules that might be restrictive of the, somebody in that group if they actually still apply. And the answer, unfortunately, for, for most of these characters is yes, these rules still apply and, and that creates a lot of problems for them. I think that, that what you are gesturing at here, this is about emancipation, right? And this is about integration into the wider frame. And the reason why is because the time period that you chose is from 1780 to 1940, you know, which sounds perhaps just like a particularly round number. But actually, it's really critical in as much as you, know, you have the early 1780s, you know, things like the debates about emancipation, the edict of tolerance of Joseph II in Austria. So this is really the opening of this era of Jews being, uh, on the one hand, welcomed into European society, but also sort of pushed away at the same moment. And this leads you know, through the course of the 19th century and ultimately you know, ending in 1940. This is the time period both of Nazi Germany as well as the growing integration of Jews in the United States as well. And so you can see this entire time period as being this era where emancipation and integration are really this huge experiment for Jews throughout Europe and also in the United States. And so I think it's really interesting. You're talking about the dance floor, right, whether that's a ballroom or tavern or, or anywhere else, as this place where these issues of integration are really being played out, you know, uh, you know in terms of how Jews are able to enter into higher society, the question of who Jews are interacting with socially, who they might marry, uh, and so on and so forth. And so I just think this is so interesting, you know, to think about things like dance, whether that's in literary terms, you know, or otherwise, as a way of thinking about the history of emancipation and integration. Do you want to sort of dive a bit more here into the, the ways in which the story of dance helps us to understand the broader story of the involvement of Jews in European cultural life, given this kind of historical backdrop of this time period that you're thinking about? So I think one of the things that I find really interesting in thinking about this time period is that there's like multiple different phenomena happening at the same time. And just like I'm thinking about like why dance becomes this really important kind of metaphor for for what could be generally phrased under the term of like Jewish modernity um, or this like era of emancipation. You have these other phenomena going on at the same time. So one of them is the increased popularity of a certain type of dancing. Um, these are intimate partner dances. So like you're not the you know the minuet anymore where there's like more distance between the couples and it's being led by a dance master. Instead, you have the intimacy of the waltz, which was considered very scandalous in the early 19th century, um, where you have this couple sort of spinning around in their own axis, looking at each other and potentially getting quite dizzy, hopefully not getting dizzy, but there's a potential for getting quite dizzy. You have these various dance fads that were quite popular. And you also have these changes in gender relations um, that go on. One is the um, the rise in um, companionate marriage. So the, this idea that marital partnerships should be based on shared emotional um, goals of things like like love, um, shocking, instead of its economic concerns. And what I think is really interesting in terms of thinking about the Jewish studies context is that this is also happening in a context where uh, part of acculturation, you have Jews leaving a traditional context in which men and women often led very separate lives, where you know, this idea of men spending 
if they had the means to spending a lot of time in this all male study house studying Talmud, and, and you'd have women, you know, having their domain. They were they were praying separately from each other. They were socializing separately from each other in in many contexts. And then part of becoming acculturated, becoming modern, is that you have men and women mixing in like various spaces, university classroom, cafes. That's something that um, Shachar Pitzker um, studied in his book, A Rich Brew. You have novels that like talk about these sorts of courtship. Um, Naomi Seidman's um, The Marriage Plot discusses this idea in the, in the Jewish context. Um, you have uh, people attend spas. Um, for a certain class, you have salons. Um, but dancing is a particularly ubiquitous activity. And dancing happens at cafes. It happens at spas. It could happen at salons. You can have university students having balls of their own. Um, so the dancing happens in all these different sorts of places. And you have people in their, in their memoirs, like Paul Rakovsky, who was this you know, feminist, Zionist, radical, writes about how when she was young, young people wouldn't go to these like, dancing classes. Um, and, now, and now by the time, the mid 20th century, like this is something that people would be doing. Part of the reason why dancing becomes this metaphor for modernity, it's not just because it's this, this taboo that was traditionally forbidden. It's also because it's it's um, modeling different sorts of gender roles. It's creating a space where women can publicly take up space, where they have this sort of role um, where they can perform for other people. And that's considered completely socially appropriate and even maybe a requirement of being a member of the, of the bourgeoisie. And you have a situation where, where young men are expected to please women. And like that's part of showing that you are properly masculine. So in that sense, it's actually, in some ways, it's, it's further removed from some of these all-male traditional Jewish spaces than some of the settings that have gotten more attention in scholarship of modern Jewish studies, you know, the sporting clubs or military service, because dancing required men and women to interact with each other in a different way that was based on courtship. And like that was something that was radical and seen in a lot of contexts as quite dangerous. Stepping back a bit, like when I think about like, this research on like, military service and sporting clubs, I'm often thinking of through the turn of the, the 19th to 20th century. But if we think back to the earlier part of the period that I'm studying, um, so around 1800, one phenomenon that, that comes up sort of in thinking about the role of dancing in this modern Jewish culture and like how it's showing some of these changes with emancipation um, is that there's actually a phenomenon of rabbis writing to their secular governments and asking them for help in cracking down on dancing that they view as inappropriate. And so the way that they're writing is um, sort of using this little language of citizenship where they're saying somebody who is going to you know, break the laws of their religious tradition, somebody who's going to engage in this sort of behavior um, is not only a, they wouldn't use this term, but isn't just a bad Jew, isn't just um, behaving in a way that, that would be considered a matter of concern for religious leaders um, and the Jewish community. It also is a sign that they would be a bad citizen. And therefore, you also have a vested interest, even if you don't care about any of these Jewish laws regulating things like dancing, um, and you don't care if Jews are you know, going to masquerade balls and like wearing clothing that has this forbidden, you know, shotness, a combination of 
wool and linen, like even if you don't care about those things, like the fact that people are being disorderly is something that you should care about. So you have this sort of different way of talking. In the early modern period, it's much more likely that the, the government would make regulations on the number of musicians who are at Jewish weddings and whether they can be held in public and things like that, that would be seen as really infringing upon the power of Jewish communities to perform their own rights in the sort of pomp and ways that they might want to. But in this modern period, you have this sort of phenomenon of Jewish communal leaders actually trying to join up with with secular authorities in order to crack down on this behavior. And that relates to this idea that this dancing is no longer a question of just sexual impropriety, which is what you get in a lot of the prohibitions on dance from before 1780, where there um, a lot of the concerns are just about people being inspired to engage in activities that are sexually inappropriate because of who they're dancing with and how they're dancing. But in this modern period, the concern isn't so much, oh, people are going to be behaving in a sexually immodest way. The concern is that they're going to be acting like they're non-Jewish neighbors. They're going to be acting in a way that's not seen as being Jewish. They're, in a sense, becoming acculturated. They're becoming modern. You can use various terms, assimilated, acculturated. It's dissimulation depending on the exact framework. But all of these things are sort of wrapped up in this concern about outside influence coming in. And dance is literally the embodiment of these concerns. And that makes it such a symbol of all of these changes that are sort of casting things in a bit of disarray. You just walked us through a whole bunch of different ways in which dance is a a useful way of thinking through the different aspects of change and transformation in Jewish culture in modern times, in the 19th century, the early 20th century, and the anxieties surrounding these in particular. And I want to sort of like focus our attention on two of them, which I think are closely related to each other. The first one being this question of integration. You know, I don't want to talk about emancipation necessarily, you know, in as much as that's often framed in political terms, right? Jewish rights, you know, et cetera. But here you're thinking about the ways in which the dance hall or the ballroom is a space where Jews are coming into contact with non-Jews, potentially even marrying non-Jews as a result of these social interactions and what this represents. And at the same time, the gender issues, right? The question about how dancing represents, comes to represent, you know, in very practical terms, but also in, in metaphorical terms, literary terms, the, the transformation of gender relations in this time as well. I think that this latter aspect is a really, really important one you know, in as much as the question of, of mixed sex dancing, as you began to say, is really important in terms of thinking about gender. I think one of the big issues related to gender in this book, besides the whole issue of men and women interacting together in these heterosocial, heterosexual contexts and sort of challenging certain expectations of courtship or at least of arranged marriage by actually engaging in courtship is that this issue of uh, mixed sex dancing actually illuminates some of the ways that men and women were seen, Jewish men and women were seen as having different potential outcomes and different trajectories in this process of acculturation. Because dancing was so ubiquitous, it really helps illuminate some of these different expectations and trajectories and ways of talking about how men and women 
experienced this culturation differently. And you have these different gender norms where there's these questions about who is able to dance. And the general expectation was that Jewish women were able to perform these social dances. And part of that was maybe just based on reality, like even in a traditional Jewish context, there's more of an expectation that women would be doing some of these partner and sort of square dances amongst themselves and that men would be more likely to do circle and solo dances. But there's generally this sort of expectation that women are able to perform these dances, even if they haven't necessarily had some of this training. And that's also related to certain ideas in European culture that Jewish women were somehow sexually available. If you think of the beautiful Jewess, the depending on which language you're using, um, that you get that motif in places like Sir Walter Scott's character, Rebecca of York and Ivanhoe. And this comes up a lot on the dancing floor. This idea that Jewish women can dance and that their bodies and sexual partners should be of interest. On the other hand, in German language literature, there's generally this expectation that Jewish men can't dance and that they their bodies have a hard time doing these proper steps. They might be described as more ungainly. And this is related to just like a general concern about Jewish men, you know, not being as as robust and sort of spending a bit too much time hunched over volumes of Talmud. Um, and that comes up a lot too in sort of Zionist discussions of like the new Jew, you know, according to Max Nordau, that there should be a jury of muscle, and that, that relates very much to this interest in sporting clubs. But this also comes up in connection with the dance floor and this sort of idea that that Jewish men maybe aren't able to dance as well, and they might not be seen as desirable partners for Jewish women in comparison with, say, non-Jewish men. But in Yiddish literature, we see something somewhat different, also related to gender, and also related to these ideas about the physicality of Jewish men, where you have writers um, like Yosef Opatoshu or Leon Kobrin, who are living in the United States and maybe want to inject some of this like physical energy into their stories. They want to talk about the Jewish underworld, about about more robust men that aren't um, that aren't scholars, and they want to sort of push back against this traditional scholarly male ideal. Right? They have male characters who are nimble dancers and are able to perform well. So you have these sorts of competing ideas of what sort of gender performance you might get. I guess I was thinking in particular when you when you asked this question about um, the tavern as a space that really has a lot of these questions of integration and where you have a lot of this mixing. One of the texts that I wrote about the the novella um, "The Kinder des Randers," the Randers children. Randers is like a leaseholder on a tavern, and this is a a novella by a Bohemian Habsburg writer, uh, Leopold Kompat, and um, he talks about the sort of different educational opportunities and also lived experiences of a brother and sister, they both end up being in these kind of questionable situations related to dance. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that the, the son has been sent to gymnasium. He's had this sort of high school education, and that puts him in contact with these modern ideas, the idea that maybe like he should view Hussites as some sort of national I- ideal, as somebody who's growing up in Bohemia. On the other hand, his sister has been trained to work in the family tavern, but she doesn't really have the training to argue against ideas related to converting to Christianity. Um, And so you have these two siblings who, because one is a boy and one is a girl, they end up being put in these different educational 
situations. And then they're sort of tempted towards bohemian culture, non-Jewish culture, by the same friend that they both have in different ways. It results in the brother participating in dancing that's viewed as being quite problematic. And then the sister engages in behavior in the context of dancing as well. I think that maybe we can kind of think through what is happening on these different levels is that you're talking about dance in modern Jewish history and culture as occupying a number of different spaces, you know, historically speaking, which is to say that on the one hand, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, dancing is a ubiquitous social activity in European culture. Dancing, of course, is uh, an important part of, you know, as you mentioned, the entire process of courtship in all levels of society. And so on the one hand, we can talk about dance as a historical activity taking place in historical spaces, you know, actual physical spaces. Uh, we can also talk about, as you discussed, the response to new forms of dance, whether that's particular forms that are viewed as scandalous at the time, or you mentioned earlier, you know, rabbis who want the government to stop Jews from participating in these things. You know, these are all actual historical developments. Then there's also the depiction of dance, whether that's in literature or in politics, you know, political you know, speeches and so on and so forth. Um, and so it's part of the, the social discourse, you know, about the anxieties of modernity. You know, so how do these things relate to each other as we think about both the actual historical experience of Jews participating in, in dance and, and various forms of the culture surrounding dance, and then the depiction and the portrayal of dance, you know, which is very much the focus of what you've been doing. You know, you look at the book and you see so many images of dance, which are just so phenomenal. And then, of course, as you're talking about literary depictions, you know, the way in which dance scenes are part of novels, novellas, you know, plays, how do these things relate to each other, where ultimately dance, as we started out with, becomes the butt of a joke, right? You know, so this is kind of like the pinnacle of, of the entry of dance into the social discourse, which has a life of its own, in a way. So like, how is it that, that we can think about the historical experience of dance in relationship to the discursive operation of dance? both in terms of historical cultural works, you know, up until the present. A lot of the texts that I work with could be described as middle-brow texts. They're often formulaic. They haven't necessarily been studied. They might have been disparaged as, in the German context, uh, tendenz literatur, tendentious literature. And so what you have is that these are stories that are meant to be entertaining. They were meant to, to bring in a readership. And yet at the same time, authors were often speaking critically about society, whether they were rebuking the evils of anti-Semitism, whether they were trying to encourage Jews to uh, maintain a traditionally observant practice, whether they were decrying the problems of arranged marriages and what they perceived as the rigidity of traditional Jewish um, religious leaders. Like all of these topics come up in the various texts that I'm looking at. So the way of connecting these two pieces, the part where they're supposed to entertain readers and the part where they're, they have some sort of critical message often is where the dance scenes often come up at pivotal moments and they can titillate the audiences. They create this sort of sense of entertainment. And because of all these other things that are brought to bear on this metaphor of dance, they're still related to the social criticism, but it's often in a way that is entertaining and it brings up some sorts of emotional development or plot development of the characters. One of my favorite examples to talk about this is not a German 
middle brow novel, but actually a very well-known um, work of American popular culture, which is the, the movie Fiddler on the Roof, where you have this character, Perchik, who is a political radical. And this musical conveys the fact that he's a political radical. The main way that they do that isn't by having him stand on a soapbox and explain the intricacies of Marxism. Instead, what he does is he introduces mixed dancing to the town of Antefka. This is um, a situation where this short dance scene that like, breaks the rules also conveys something about the political inclinations of the character. And in the context of the literary text that I work on, that often says something about the political inclinations of the authors themselves and their readerships. I want to talk a bit more about the spaces where the dance is taking place. And you identify four key ones, the tavern, the ballroom, the wedding, and the dance hall. I think it's so interesting to think about you know, on the one hand, the dance floor is this ubiquitous thing, but there are so many different permutations of what this looks like socially and historically speaking. So what is it that ties together these different spaces and that helps us to understand the way the dance is functioning in Jewish culture and modernity at large, but also how it is changing over time? So what is it about these four spaces that helps to illuminate different sides of dance on the one hand, but also sort of a through line? of the meaning of dance in Jewish culture? I often think about them in connection with various sort of stages of life. And like, yes, these, these spaces, I discuss them in largely chronological order, moving from the 19th century up until the first half of the 20th century and moving from Europe to the United States, the Russian and Habsburg empires through to Germany and then to the United States. There's that sort of motion. But what I really think about in terms of these, um, these four dance spaces is um, sort of stages of life, where the first, first of these um, chapters dealing with spaces is concerned with taverns. And the real concern for Jewish writers who wrote about taverns and like, Jewish tavern keeping was um, the question of education of children. These families that are in these rural villages, maybe the only Jewish family, and they're raising ch Jewish children in this context where maybe the parents aren't incredibly educated themselves, you know, how are these children going to have a Jewish education? What's going to prevent them from being somehow tempted by all of the different types of boundary crossing that's happening in their parents' workplace, which is often in the same building as their home? And so this comes up, this idea that this education that maybe is somehow questionable might lead to the children later on being too invested, too tempted, too assimilated by the sort of peasant non-Jewish culture that's seen as being somehow base and dangerous. So there we have childhood. Then the next chapter is, is on balls. And balls are often associated with courtship and the sort of testing out of potential marriage partners in basically the maximum physical way that would have been um, considered appropriate, which is embracing them on the dance floor in public in front of your parents and all your friends. And so like, various issues that come up in this chapter, I talk about balls, non-Jewish balls, where there were maybe one or two Jews um, in attendance, and then also these Jewish balls that recapitulate some of the same sorts of issues of inclusion and exclusion that come up at the non-Jewish balls. But all of them are, generally speaking, related in some way to this question of courtship. 
the next chapter is weddings. Um, so weddings, of course, that marriage is, um, is another stage of life. So I have a chapter on weddings, like the tavern chapter that's focusing more on, on towns rather than cities. And you have these you know, weddings that bring in all sorts of people that are in some way related to the, the bride and groom and their families, and they're coming into contact. And that includes religious leaders who are much more likely to crack down on illicit dancing at weddings or the other spaces that I discussed that are much less likely to have rabbis in attendance. Um, so the weddings are the spot where the consequences are much more likely to happen quickly and you have like much more of a communal response and a much more explicit voicing of the prohibition and mixed dancing than you'd have, for instance, in my fourth setting, which is dance halls. That often happens in the United States. And one of the texts that I discuss, Abraham Kaham's novella Yekel, and that deals with a man who's married, but still goes to dance halls and sort of hides the fact that he's married. He hasn't brought his wife over to the United States yet. And this is in a context where it was viewed as a big social problem that um, you had married men who would come to the United States and not bring over their wives. So they, they would abandon their wives in the U.S. or maybe they would go move further to the West, um, leaving their, their families behind, maybe seek out a new partner. The Forwarts daily Yiddish newspaper had a gallery of husbands that they were basically publicly shaming um, for having abandoned their wives. Um, so this is the context where Yekel takes place, where there's this concern, the role of dancing in married life, both for a man who wants to go to dance halls when his wife isn't around, and also eventually after he gets married, when he and his new wife are interested in starting a dance hall of their own. And this idea of what married life would look like also comes up in the other text that I discuss, Kadya Molodovsky's A Jewish Refugee in New York, where this Jewish refugee from Nazi-occupied Poland, Rivka Zilberg, um, might lose her identity um, by marrying an American man. So that's sort of the implication of this novel. And so even though things like courtship come up in all four of the dance spaces that I talk about, the four of them is also kind of having this sort of trajectory of, of somebody's life potentially from, from childhood up through uh, marriage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that what you've illustrated here are some of the ways in which these different spaces illustrate different sort of times in people's lives, also different kinds of social spaces. So I guess part of what I was thinking about from before was what is it that ties them together that helps us to understand dance on like the largest scale? So there's several ways in which I can think of that. Um, one is that these are some of the most common spaces that dancing appears in texts. And uh, some of the ones that either are seen as particularly Jewish or not particularly Jewish. So taverns have been viewed as Jewish spaces because of frequency with which they were run by Jews and Jewish weddings. It seems pretty obvious that, that those are the weddings that happen to be Jewish weddings um, or have at least one partner that's Jewish that they would be associated with Jewishness in some way. And there's also been research um, that talks about Jewish dance hall attendance in this kind of web of different ethnic dance communities in the United States at the beginning of the 20th century, or basically between the 1880s and the 1920s, this period when there was a huge migration of East European Jews to the United States. Balls uh, have not been explored 
in quite that same context. And it's not technically one of the spaces that I analyze in that sort of way. I talk about how Jews learned how to dance. Um, and so some of these spaces in which Jews learned to dance, like the balls, that was a sort of topic that hadn't really been explored in this way in as much of a Jewish context. So I had to really look for texts that talked about Jewish participation in, in balls and how Jews learned how to dance, um, what sorts of spaces they would be in when they were sort of learning how to discipline their bodies in this way and learn grace and etiquette and some of the emotional expectations of the dance floor. And so those sorts of things required a certain amount of kind of digging around. Part of what's interesting as you're talking about these different spaces is that on the one hand, you know, as we've discussed, dance and then dancing is this kind of ubiquitous and common social experience, but it operates differently in different kinds of spaces. For instance, the tavern and the ballroom offer us a certain kind of multiple dichotomies. On the one hand, for instance, taverns as this stereotypically Jewish space, you know, since Jews are so involved in sort of liquor production and, and so on and so forth, and balls, broadly speaking, you know, there are Jewish balls and non-Jewish balls, but it's this area where Jews are trying to enter into the wider society in many respects, you know, by going to non-Jewish balls. You know, so there's the one dichotomy that we can point to there, you know, and also a rural and urban split as well. How is it that we can compare and contrast different cultural contexts by using this one kind of through line of dance? you know, to look at different things and thereby to understand how Jewish culture is operating and how Jews' interaction with the broader context is taking place differently in different places. As you mentioned before, this kind of through line that we can see dance sort of taking place in, in different locations and, and so on and so forth. One of the things that I find really interesting thinking about this is like the different types of mixing that take place. I mean, so I talk about mixed sex dance, like that's the term that I use, but there's really so many different types of mixing that takes place. And actually in a lot of contexts, I would say that men and women dancing together might not have even, it seemed particularly scandalous if the man and woman who are dancing together are people who would have been considered generally appropriate marriage partners by their parents. But we have all these other types of mixing that are also going on between Jews and Christians, between members of different classes. You also have different types of mobility going on. You have authors who maybe grew up in Galicia or Bohemia who are moving to Vienna or Berlin or New York, and they're like coming into contact with various people there. You have weddings where different sorts of guests are coming and you're literally having the mixing of two families. When you think about taverns and balls are associated with urban areas than rural areas, they both are also dependent on a lot of mixing. Because even though the tavern has been conceptualized as a, a Jewish space for all the reasons that we've talked about, most of the dancing that actually happens in taverns that I've found, not all of it, but most of it, is customers who aren't Jewish. And a lot of the, the dancing that I discuss that Jews are participating in often happens sort of around it and by, is done by people that were already spending too much time around these dancing peasants in their parents' place of work. So you have that sort of mixing going on. In balls, there's 
with this sort of jockeying for some sort of social position or for appropriate matches, you also have these, sort of, these sorts of questions of, uh, of mixing, of who's dancing with whom, you know, all these different sort of layers of mixing and boundary crossing that come up in these various spaces, these concerns over whether Jews are admitted to non-Jewish ballroom spaces, uh, the concerns about whether a non-Jewish man at a Jewish ball might be seen as um, too attractive by the Jewish women in attendance, um, like all of these questions come up at these, in these various spaces. And so a lot of the conversations sort of hinge on the, the issue of gender, of men and women dancing with each other because of the taboo, because of all of the ways in which it's related to uh, sexual behavior and morality. Um, but there's all these other layers of mixing that make it much richer and more complicated and make it also create more of this sort of scandal and ability to identify it with all the sort of dizzying array of changes that are happening with modernity. You've illustrated here and over the course of our conversation, the ways in which the issues of dance really indicate a whole range of anxieties about modernity and, and about sort of the, the experiences of Jews within it. We've talked mostly about the European context. Do you maybe want to shift gears a little bit here and talk more about how the story comes to America? I think that we can definitely see dance being a part of the story of American Jewish history and culture as well. And when we talk about Jews, especially Jewish immigrants, interacting with a culture that they are not familiar with and dance halls being part of that story too. So what do we see when we bring this story, which really begins in Europe, and think about it in an American context as well? When we think about this period of this big wave of East European Jewish immigration to the United States, especially New York, um, so between 1881 and 1924, it must have been such a shockingly new experience for a lot of the people who immigrated. A lot of them were young people who were in a situation where they, they weren't around their families, they weren't in their communal structures, they no longer had the same sort of pressure to participate in the sorts of communal institutions they would have before. There was a lot of emphasis on becoming American, which meant things like learning English, but also opportunities for certain sorts of, of leisure culture, going out dancing, going to Coney Island, going to Yiddish theaters. And so it's in this, sort of, this context where people no longer have to be as aware of the expectations of your elders, where you don't have the same sort of traditional expectations that you might have in a shtetl. Of course, you also had these urbanization and modernization going on in, in European cities, but there was a very noticeable break for a lot of people, not, not everyone. There, there continued to be um, Orthodox communities in the United States, for instance. But it's in this context of a lot of push and pull factors to try and identify as being more American. You have a writer like Abraham Kahan in his no novel, The Rise of David Levinsky, um, where he's explicitly identifying being American with going to dance halls. And he has the character compare it to the situation in his hometown back in Eastern Europe, where women weren't supposed to go to learn how to dance. And then he comes to the United States, and the sign of being American is participating in these sorts of social activities and dance halls. And this character um, actually ends up not learning how to dance, which creates problems for him, which I discussed 
um, in an article I wrote in Dance Chronicle, but um, this sort of explicit identification of like learning to dance with being an American is something that we also get in some of the other texts that I discuss at more length in this chapter. One of the things I found really interesting about this sort of dance hall phenomenon and all these like dance spaces in New York that are generally associated with this dance hall culture. So you also have dancing in other locations, the Landsmannschaft and balls, these sort of hometown associations. You'd have dancing in saloons, dancing academies. Like there's all these different spaces that are identified with dance halls in the popular imagination. And one of the things that I find really interesting there is the role of capitalism in regulating this courtship and sort of sexual behavior. Um, so you have phenomena like, for instance, treating. And treating was where men who were often better paid um, in factories would buy things for the women that they danced with. And there was um, there was an open question about whether whether this created some sort of burden of expectations that you know, a man and a woman dance together and he treats her. Is there an expectation that she pay him back in some other way? Um, so there was this association between this dance hall culture and basically prostitution. You even have muckraker journalism that is identifying dance halls and specifically Jewish dance hall attendees with a kind of recruiting ground for sex trafficking. The role of capitalism and commerce um, becomes really important in thinking about the dance halls, especially because a lot of the American Yiddish writers and American Yiddish readers tended to be um, politically on the left. And so they were thinking about these issues related to capitalism and exchange and money and how those related to these same sorts of questions of courtship and marriage and encounters on the dance floor that, that also animated some of the other dance spaces that I talk about in this book. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously this, there's so much to, to think about here. As, as we've talked about, there are multiple levels at which we can think about dance in so many different historical contexts. And there are so many different individual spaces that we could talk about and where different aspects of all of this come into play. And I guess the one thing that, that I want to ask as we finish up is about the idea of mobility. This was something that really struck me. You talk about dance as really being about mobility, you know, both on the dance floor and also within society. And it's such a striking way of talking about it. And I want to highlight, we've talked about mobility before on the podcast. Actually, the very first episode that we ever did was with Sherry Rabin uh, about her book, Jews on the Frontier. And we were talking about mobility in American Jewish culture. This is a different kind of mobility, right? You're not talking about Jews moving from place to place on a large scale, though, of course, you know, as you were just saying, this is also part of the story of Jewish migration on a global scale. But when we're talking about the dance floor, you know, it's about mobility on a smaller scale, you know, in terms of the actual physical location, you know, and also about mobility in place, meaning you stay in one place, but you move within society in terms of who you're interacting with, in terms of uh, potential marriage you know, and so on and so forth. When you talk about dance as being about mobility, can you walk us through this metaphor? What is the broader ramification for looking at mobility in, in modern Jewish culture through the lens of dance in particular? One of the things that I did find really striking there, as you mentioned, is that dancing lessons in particular were seen as a training ground for preparing young people for the kind of 
social mobility that they were expected to have. And so the way this happens by teaching proper deportment and control of the body um, and proper emotions, but also the types of dance class that you could attend as an acculturated young Jew, say, in, in Nuremberg, was dependent on your class, where according to one memoir, it was considered more prestigious. Um, you had to be more elite um, as a Jew to be in the same dance class as Christians. Um, there are also a lot of concerns in the German dance school context that young people also wouldn't embarrass themselves, that the, you know, that the boys, for instance, would have the opportunity to practice the steps extensively before they started dancing them with female partners. And the reason for doing this was so they wouldn't be embarrassed. So there was a lot about training people to sort of fit into this particular type of bourgeois milieu that was intended to help them rise in society and sort of behave in a certain sort of way that would give them social cachet and allow them to achieve the things in life that they were hoping to do. You know, so it's not just about the, the choice of marriage partner or the sort of social context that you would be in as, even as a child. But also the other form of mobility in place, um, which was the, the proper way of moving and controlling your body. Although, of course, there are different expectations for men and women according to that, because in partner dances where there's close physical contact and the, the man is dancing in the lead role and the woman in the follow role, he has a lot more control over both of their bodies. So he's also sort of directing where they're going to go and things like that. As I said before, there's so much more that we could say about this. I hope that this conversation is in some ways a starting point for thinking about these questions of mobility and also the anxieties around mobility that I think that your book and this broader research project on dance and Jewish culture really illustrate in so many really exciting ways. Thank you so much for this look into how we can think about dance in modern Jewish culture. This is just such a phenomenal set of issues. Uh, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I enjoyed talking with you as well. And thanks to you for listening to our conversation. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.